0: Well, please take your Bibles if you've not done so yet, and turn with me to the book of Acts. If you grabbed one of the blue pew Bibles, or not pews—we've got chairs here—I know that um, one of the Bibles in the seatbacks in front of you—you you can find uh, our text on page nine hundred twenty. Uh, the title of the sermon this morning is uh, Antioch, and the keywords for our worshipers and training are persecution, Christians, and relief. So, kids, those are the words to be listening for to keep track of how many times I do or don't say them. I don't know. could be one or two. We'll see. Well, having come through the first uh, big chunk of, of Acts, getting through the, the first half of chapter 11 last week, we've seen, that the, the, we've seen the primary thread of this book is the outworking of of Jesus' commission to his apostles that he gave in Acts 1-8, where he commissioned them to bear witness to his resurrection, starting in Jerusalem, working out into Judea and Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. Um, and and be, last week we looked at sort of that official turn to the, the ends of the earth as the Gentiles were, were brought in through the ministry of the Apostle Peter. Um, Jesus has been accomplishing his mission, uh, his mission for his church all through this book, and he's done so by the giving of his Spirit in copious measure uh, to his disciples, beginning in uh, Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and finally um, in uh, Caesarea we saw last week with the the Gentiles, at Cornelius' house. And all along the way, Luke has peppered his account with these uh, summary statements of what God has been doing. He says in Acts 5 that, that God, through his apostles, had filled up Jerusalem with the teaching about Jesus. And then in Acts 9, the church uh, in Judea and Samaria had been built up and was being strengthened, walking in the fear of of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and then in last week in Acts 11, uh, the conclusion in verse 18 was that then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so what follows in the rest of this book from uh, Acts 11:19 on, especially beginning in Acts 13, uh, but what we see from here on in is. Luke's account of the kingdom's spread, the kingdom of God and its spread to the ends of the earth as he brings in the Gentiles into his fold. And this occurs through the preaching of the gospel. In our passage this morning, we see the church established in Antioch, which will become a flagship city for Paul's missionary endeavors in the the days and weeks and months and years to come from their point of view, and so we will see that as we go. I want to read verses uh, 19 through 30 here in Acts 11, and then I will outline our passage and the structure of the sermon, and then we will get to work. So let's read Acts eleven nineteen through 30. Luke writes, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. In this passage, the church of God is brought into focus. There's a church planted and begun there in Antioch, and so there are there are three markers of the church there that are should be representative of of any church that I want to highlight for us this morning, and so uh, we'll see the first marker of the church in verses 19 through 24. And that is essentially there is a a great unity that God gives to his people. So 19 through 24, point one, God's church is marked by unity. Second, God's church is marked by a devotion to doctrine in verses 25 and 26. Third, God's church is marked by a generous spirit, verses 27 through 30. So we have the unity of the church, a devotion to doctrine, sound teaching in the church, and the church is marked by a generous spirit. Look with me in the first place then, verses 19 through 24, where we see the unity that comes to mark the people of God as this church is planted in Antioch. Now at first glance, when you first begin reading this passage, it might actually seem like a bit odd that I would talk about unity. It might even seem like a wrong observation to make from these verses. After all, we're told at the beginning of this passage that there seems to be some measure of disunity. Some of those who were scattered spoke only to Jews, and others arriving at Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, in this case, non-Jews. But if you look at how Luke describes this situation as a whole, and in particular as you see the result of what happens when Barnabas shows up, the disunity... That was inherent in their hearts when this scattering began from the persecution back in chapter 8. What it gives way to unity through the ministry of, of Barnabas, right? The result of the scattering when, when the persecution they stoned Stephen and the persecution broke out against the church in Acts 8. The result is exactly what we would expect from what we saw last week, that the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so, it, it's not Paul, it's not Peter, it's it's unnamed disciples who go and are, are ministering to these n- now becoming new disciples there in Antioch. And so the, the word and report of this comes to Jerusalem. So they send Barnabas to Antioch to check it out. Barnabas we met back in Acts chapter 5. And his, he was a very generous man. He's bought, he sold a field and gave the proceeds to uh, the church. So they send Barnabas to check out what's going on. And here's what he finds. You see it in verse 23. Um, he came and he saw what? The grace of God. What a great way to put it. When Barnabas sees the faith of the Gentiles there at Antioch, he concludes this is the grace of God. He sees God's work, or he sees God's grace at work here, and he was glad. And he exhorted the believers there to remain faithful to the Lord. With steadfast purpose. Why? We're told it's because he was a good man. Full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. There's, there's no sense of rivalry in factions here. The, the, the possible disunity that we see at the beginning of the passage is giving way to the careful observation and joy of uh, one of the at least informal leaders of the church, Barnabas at the time. It's giving way... to to unity. The ethnocentric nature of evangelism in verses 19-20 through gives way to joyful reception of the Gentiles into the church of God. I love what Luke writes about Barnabas here when he sees this. It says Barnabas saw it and was glad. I want to go back for a minute to the question that we've been asking over the past several weeks. Think about the the hard-to-love people in your life. In particular, think about the, maybe the hard-to-love non-Christians. What, is, what would your response be when they come to faith? Right, and we're, and we're not necessarily just talking about people who are different, people that you don't know, but, but people that you have some real actual maybe beef with. Right? Some animosity. Some people you might consider an enemy. Would you be like Jonah? Would you be angry and frustrated that God would show mercy to that guy? Or would you be like Barnabas and rejoice that God would give grace to that guy? And this isn't some manufactured smile plastered over a grumbling heart. Barnabas was glad, and, and he exhorted them, the believers there, he exhorted them in the faith. And I want to think for a minute about this description of Barnabas. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. What a commendation from the pen of the historian. What a thing to say about somebody. We know, after all, that there is none good. No, not one. We're all wicked and depraved, according to Paul and Romans, according to the Psalms. So what's he saying here? Well, Barnabas was not merely a nice and externally moral man. He was a good man in the sense that he was renewed by the Spirit. He was marked by faith in the living Christ. One commentator writes, it is the highest and most humbling praise that can be accorded to any human being. He was a good man because he was God's man. And through his ministry, a great many people were added to the Lord. And so one of the things that you can know about yourself, that we can know about ourselves in terms of are we... Good men and good women? Well, how do we respond when God saves, from a human perspective, the unsavable? Right? What, what about us? What, what lies behind our responses to the professed faith of others? Is it faith, hope, and love? Or disdain and skepticism and bitterness? Culturally, we live at a time and a day where uh, there is a growing divide amongst people. What do you do when someone on the other side says, Amen? I pray that we would rejoice when the unlikely convert turns to the Lord in faith as God adds to His church. I pray that like the saints here, that we would be marked by unity. But also pray that we would be marked by a love for the truth. We see that in verses 25 and 26, our second point here. There is a devotion by the believers there at Antioch to doctrine, a devotion to sound doctrine. Barnabas sees all of this, all the good things that God is doing, and so he goes and he finds Saul. Remember Saul, after he had he'd been converted, he'd been run out of Damascus. Uh, He'd come, ended up at Jerusalem at one point, and he was run out of Jerusalem uh, as well. And so he's over in Tarsus, and so uh, Barnabas goes and he finds him and he brings him with him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church there and they taught a great many people. Luke writes, and it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. The church in Antioch was devoted to doctrine. They wanted to learn. They wanted to be taught, and it was a desire that Barnabas and Saul were all too eager to meet. If you've, uh, many of you have experienced this. Maybe you've, maybe you've recently become a Christian, or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but perhaps can remember what it was like for you when you first became a Christian. Right? Have you ever? Did you experience that? You were converted to Christ. And what, what did you want? You wanted to do nothing but read your Bible. You wanted to do nothing but read it and talk about it with others to share what God was doing in your life. You were, we were all just little sponges, right? Just soaking up all that we could. What a wonderful thing new faith is. And yet, it's important that we not miss what's happening here. It's noteworthy that Luke includes this line that at Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. You see, for them, it was not a matter of abstract doctrine. It was not mere theology, doctrine, and teaching that they were devoted to. They were devoted to a person. They were devoted to Christ. Another way you could say it would be this. What was it that Barnabas and Saul taught the disciples at Antioch for a year? Well, they taught them doctrine for sure. That wouldn't be wrong to say. But would it not be better to say they were teaching them Christ? That's why they're called Christians. The mission of, of, of this church, of Redeemer Baptist Church, is to worship God with joy To love our neighbors, to see transformed lives, and to send and be sent for the spread of the gospel through Jesus Christ. All that we are and all that we do as a church, and this is true of any true church, it should and must be summed up in the Lord Jesus. It's all through Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. It's all for Jesus. Apart from Him, we have and can do nothing. Christian discipleship, what it means to be a disciple of Christ, is to learn, to submit our minds, our hearts, and our wills to Jesus. To learn Christ. Discipleship involves learning, and it involves learning Jesus. This is what the saints did in Antioch, and it's what we strive to do and are to do here at Redeemer Baptist Church. And so as they learned Christ, what's the result? Well, they became known as Christians followers of Christ, in other words. They weren't being taught a bunch of esoteric doctrine for the sake of puffing up their intellect. They were being taught Christ. And the teaching worked its way out in their lives such that others started seeing this, seeing that they resembled Christ and they were called Christians Initially, admittedly, in a, a pejorative sense it seems, but how sweet it is for us to bear the name Christian. How encouraging is it for us to join our brothers and sisters two millennia back in bearing the name of God's anointed one. My friends, let me ask you this. Do you, do you struggle Do you find yourself struggling in various places and avenues, areas of your life, to be called Christian? Are you ashamed to bear such a name at work, at home? If so, I I, want to direct you for a minute to, to Hebrews Hebrews chapter 2. I don't normally flip around a ton, but as I was thinking this week, I think we need to hear these words. And it's a little bit of a, a lengthy stretch here. I'm going to read verses 5 through 18 of Hebrews 2, but I want, I want you to listen to this. If, if you're struggling at all with this, ever, and, and I think if we're honest, we all can. Struggling to, be, to bear this name. Listen to what, what we read here. It says, For it was not... To angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the Son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." If you're struggling, brothers, sisters, to identify with the Lord Jesus at home or at work or with your friends, does it not help you to see that Jesus was not ashamed and is not ashamed to identify with you? And He doesn't just identify with you, but because of the temptations that He faced, He is able to help you when you are being tempted. When you are in your time of need. So to sum up what we're saying under this point, the, the church of God is not marked by a mere devotion to certain abstract doctrines. We're, we are devoted to doctrine not as an end in itself, but as a means to communion with Christ and the triune God, all in all, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so let's devote ourselves to Scripture, to the apostles' teaching, and in it, let us see and savor Christ. Let us learn Christ. Let us love Christ. And I pray, like these saints here in Antioch, that we would always be marked out in this world as Christians. Well, thirdly, then, let's see in verses 27 through 30, um, this third mark of the church, a, a radically generous spirit. Not only is the church marked by unity, not only is it marked by a devotion to sound doctrine that promotes fellowship with Jesus, but the church is marked by a generous spirit. Luke tells us in these verses that during this time, right, during this speaking specifically of this year, Barnabas and Saul were were teaching the saints in Antioch. He said Jerusalem would send prophets down to Antioch. And one of them, Agabus, who we'll we'll see him come back later in the story, uh, he tells them uh, that there would be a great famine over the world. And Luke, uh, parenthetically, helpfully, adds that he, he confirms the legitimacy of this prophecy. He tells us that um, it was prophesied by the Spirit, and he says that it happened in the days of Claudius, which was about forty four, forty six BC, um, BC uh, AD, um, when uh, when this was to occur, and and so I want to I want to note here the the response of the disciples to this need that they are. Informed what would occur. They determined, every one of them, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so by sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now, of course, if you've been with us as we go through Acts, or if you're familiar with the book of Acts, Broadly, you're reminded in in Acts 2 and Acts 4 come to mind. Acts 5 comes to mind. Where we see the disciples in Jerusalem giving of their possessions, uh, selling the things that they had, caring for one another as needs arose. Before we look at some of the the way that Luke describes this generosity, I want you to, to think... How wild this generosity is. What were they just told? That a terrible famine was coming. What what would happen in our midst, right? Let's say we were, you expected, you know, there was, uh, let's say you got good inside information that a terrible famine, economic collapse was coming. What would you do? How would we respond? Would we be tempted to hoard our stuff up for ourselves? Oh, problems coming. Troubles a-brewing. I've got to make sure that I am provided for. In one sense, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But, But look at what they do here. Rather than merely hoarding up all their resources for themselves, they parted with some of those resources for the sake of others who were to struggle severely. The coming years, does our love, brothers and sisters, work out in this kind of generosity for for one another, for other believers around the world? Are we eager to uh, to alleviate the suffering of others? I think so. I think I think many of us are. As a church, we we are. But well, we, we want to constantly be asking ourselves, how can we grow? And so I want to note a few things with you from the way that Luke describes their generosity here. Um, I want to examine it a bit more closely. First, he, he, he helps us to see that their generosity was something that they did on purpose. Second, he, he helps us to see that it was something they did according to their ability. And third, he helps us to see it was something that they did through the ministry of The church. So I want to look at each of those in turn. So first, it was something they did on purpose. They determined to give, we're told. They weren't forced to give. They weren't robbed. They determined in their own hearts to give to the need of which they heard. Are we determined in our hearts to give to the needs of others? When you hear about a need that arises among brothers and sisters in Christ, Specifically, we'll think here in our local church. How often do you stop and ask yourself, should, should I give to, to this need in, in some, some way? Or do you assume perhaps that someone else will do it? You know, the truth is, no one can give for you. The government tries, it'll tax you to death and tell you that it's for your good and for the good of others, less fortunate than you. But that's not the same thing. If you're going to give, you're going to have to demonstrate your love for your fellow man in a way that is marked and sacrificial. You've, you've got to determine to do so. Generosity is something determined, not accidental. It's, it's planned, not haphazard. So, it's always good to ask ourselves, do I seek out and plan ways to be generous to others. Not just with your money either. With your time and energy and skills, we want to be generous. But it's worth noting here the second thing, that they gave according to their ability. And this is a really important point to stress here. There's not a one-size-fits-all standard for what we have to give. You know, oftentimes we we talk and think in terms of percentages, and and I think that can be helpful, can be useful in in terms of, certainly more useful to think in terms of percentages of what we give rather than specific dollar amounts. But the truth is that 10% for person A is going to be a lot more sacrificial or perhaps much less sacrificial than it would be for person B. So there, there are plenty of places in Scripture that speak to the need for our giving to be sacrificial. And so, it should be sacrificial. But the point that I, we see Luke making here, what he highlights, is that our giving also needs to be responsible. Don't, in other words, don't give yourself into poverty. Don't give so much that you become destitute and dependent upon others. Give According to your ability. Now of course a word of caution there, what our ability is may likely be higher, maybe significantly higher than what we initially might be tempted to think. You know, we live in a in a in a comfortable age, an affluent age and and um, by comparison to most of the world, our this specific area is is very well off. And so we need to beware of deceptive hearts. We don't want to trick ourselves into thinking that our ability is significantly lower than it really is. Our ability is significantly lower than God sees it. But at the same time, be wise. Don't don't give yourself into poverty. But remember this. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy that if we have food and clothing, with these things we can be content. So when we hear of needs fellow Christians and, I, and, and as we consider what it means to be generous people we need to make sure that we know it has to be a conscious choice and it has to be done according to your actual ability you can't give what you do not have and neither should you give so much that you have nothing left to give again here's a good way to think about it give sacrificially But give in such a way that it enables you to be sacrificial over the long haul. So a third thing about their giving is that it wasn't just on purpose and it wasn't just responsible, but it was done through the ministry of the church. They gave relief to the brothers in Judea by sending it to the elders through Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul, along with the elders in Jerusalem, were responsible men who could be trusted. Now, you're certainly free to give to charitable causes and needs that arise on your own as an individual, of course. But it is good and right that you facilitate much of your giving through the ministry of your local church. There is uh, an expectation that God has for us in that, but Partly it's because there's a collective wisdom from which we can benefit when we pool our resources and our minds together for specific agreed-upon purposes. I don't personally have the wisdom that I need to know every single thing and cause that I need to be giving toward. But the collective wisdom of the elders and deacons and along with the congregation as we're guided by the Spirit... That helps us to see the kinds of possibilities that exist for giving, for helping, for relieving those who are in need and for engaging in faithful ministry. It is the church that God has ordained as the institution to provide for the spiritual and in many ways the the physical needs of others, right? We saw that in Acts 6. And so the challenge to us is, are we, are we givers? The, ch- the early church, if nothing else, it was marked by generosity. We saw it in Acts 2. We saw it in Acts 4. We saw it in Acts 5. We saw it in Acts 6. We see it here again in Acts 11. And until pretty recently, the church in the world continued to be marked as exceptionally generous. It was the place of Of generosity and care and charity. Sadly, government and parachurch entities have have sought to take over in this regard, and and I'm not slamming parachurch entities, but I'm just saying we need to resist the temptation as the local church to give in, to hand over our responsibility, to care for one another and for our community at large, to others. It is the church's responsibility to provide for these needs especially soul care but we are soul and body and so we want to relieve the suffering of others and we start of course with the household of God and so broadly then as we begin to wind down here and laying the plane what what do we need to take away from this section of scripture well, really just revisiting those three points. Briefly, it's worth asking again, are, are we marked by unity here at, at Redeemer Baptist Church? Are we glad to see others come to faith? Are we glad to see the grace of God at work in the lives of those who are different from us? Those who we might find one reason or another to be difficult to love. Are we people of whom it could be said that we are good men and women full of the Spirit and of faith? As our county grows and people move here from... Different places in the country, are we, are we eager to see that? We might not be eager about the traffic, but are we glad to see people coming to this area and coming to this church who maybe didn't grow up here? And as we think about what, what makes us different from one another, can we be glad that we have Christ and His gospel that unites us, if nothing else? Well, second thing, what about sound doctrine? Not just are you committed to sound doctrine, but are because if you're committed to it only as an end and of itself, then you are you've only got half the equation at best. The doctrine of the Bible, Scripture and its truth, is here for us for fellowship with God and His Son. And as we think about enjoying God through through the Bible. Consider the, the Trinitarian nature of this passage. Right? Christ, we're told in verse 20, Christ was preached to those in Antioch. They became Christians. God's grace was evident to Barnabas when he arrived. And the Spirit was at work in Barnabas' life, in Agabus' life, and in the church. God as Trinity is clearly at work among the saints here at Antioch. And he prepares and equips them to be, as we said to be at the beginning, to be a flagship city in the advance of the gospel as the kingdom of God moves to the end of the earth. It's here in Antioch, where Barnabas and Saul are commissioned as missionaries and sent out on one of you know Paul's first missionary journey. It begins here at Antioch. That we'll see in Acts thirteen. But here in Acts 11, we see the church, those of Jewish and Greek culture, coming together, experiencing unity, being charged to remain faithful and steadfast. The church is growing. They're devoted to Christ and they're full of the Spirit. They're marked by generosity. And so we want to be like them and we want to be devoted to doctrine and to Christ. And we want to be generous. Now, Things are, are on an exceptional high note. Now, I'll, I'll end with this. A great high note here in Acts 11. But Acts 12 is coming next. There are difficult days ahead for the church. We get our description of, of the, the second martyr of the church. When James is killed. The time of peace that the church has been enjoying since the end of Acts 9 is coming to an end in a way. The kingdom of man uh, has, uh, is, uh, has, uh, is going to awaken from his slumber and once again go on the attack. But thanks be to God, it's, it's all in vain. This is how Acts 12 ends. And here's, a, I guess you call it a, a cliffhanger of sorts to draw you in next time. Acts 12, 24, despite... What's going to come? This is how it ends. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The drumbeat continues through this book. Peace, unity, fellowship, generosity, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of persecution, God's word will continue to increase and multiply.